0: Welcome to The Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. Hi there, I'm Erica Brown. I'm the editor and publisher of The Manchester Cricket, and I'm here today with Dr. Larry Lamb, veterinarian and owner and founder of Manchester Animal Hospital in Manchester. Hi, Larry.
1: Good morning, Erica. How are you? I'm very good, thanks.
0: Good. Now, you have to remind me, um, you have been writing the column Pets and People for The Cricket's Long before me, long before I came along, so you have to remind me and our readers just how long have you been con- writing your column? Your very popular column on pet care and pets.
1: Boy, I'd say fifteen, twenty years. Wow!
0: I, yeah, there it's isn't a, a topic that you have not covered. It's amazing. No,
1: and it's funny each week to try to decide what I think will be interesting to an audience.
0: Yeah. Well, I we hear a lot, and we get a lot of feedback on your column. You go into issues of health that are expected and unexpected and surprising and, and a lot of things that prompt a lot of thought, and it really goes into the true complexities of veterinary medicine today. I wanted to ask you, though, to come in and talk about, really, about your profession. I, I think it's very interesting. We're at an interesting time with with veterinarians and pet care and pets in our lives. It used to be 30 years ago then or 50 years ago, that the role of pets in in our lives and in our families' lives has dramatically changed, and veterinary medicine along with it. Where did you get started? Do you mind talking about like right right from the beginning and about what you do for a living?
1: No, absolutely, of course. You know, Erica, we could start off with the premise that everybody wants to be a veterinarian sometime in their life. Hmm. And the second thing I could tell you, I probably love practicing this profession more today than I ever have. Now, that being said, there's a lot of caveats that go along with that. One of them is that I was extremely fortunate to become interested in veterinary medicine when I was still in high school. I worked for another veterinarian who was very progressive and ahead of their times, actually twins, who built a very modern animal hospital way before small animal medicine was even that much of a concept. And they inspired me to basically go ahead Consider trying to get into Cornell University, which at the time was almost impossible because of the number of applications that they got and how many spaces that they had, which was sixty a year. And this is for the whole state of New York. And Cornell was,
0: University's veterinary program is is very very. I mean, it's seminal. It's very very well known. It's very yeah. It's, one of, it's considered it's, exactly. it's considered
1: one of the best. And at the time, there were only seventeen veterinary schools in the whole United States, so just sixty of us. So that was uh, uh, another unique experience. But to speak uh, about the present time and the status of pets, I think there are two things that I, I find particularly interesting right now. Number one, what is it to be a veterinarian today and what is it like compared to what it was when I started? And then the other thing is where pets are actually probably more important today than they've been in a long time. They've always been important to people, especially the elderly families. But with the pandemic, there was a tremendous surge in getting pets because people were confined at home. Mm. And being able to have that emotional support of having a pet was extremely important. Of course. But if we go back and we consider and compare what it was to become a veterinarian when I started the profession and what it is today, I would say to you that at the time that I went into veterinary medicine and for many years, I would recommend that anybody and everybody who could become a veterinarian because it's a wonderful thing to do at least the way I can do it.
0: Mm.
1: Now, we'll go back to why I'm very lucky in the way that I can practice today. It used to be when I started that basically we didn't have specialists in the profession. Veterinary medicine has moved into a very highly technical, advanced, very similar to human medicine state. So we have specialists now. We have specialists in almost every field of veterinary medicine, whether it's oncology, surgery, neurology, you name it, there's a specialist. When I started veterinary medicine, I had to be it. If there was an orthopedic operation that needed to be done, there wasn't a referral hospital to send to. I had to do the orthopedic operation. I had to learn how to put pins in broken legs, screw broken legs together, and I also had to lie in bed at night hoping (laughs) that it was going to work because I was the only one who was going to basically do it. So that was uh, challenging, but also it was unique, and it was – uh, I think challenging is the word, but most importantly, there were skills that I was able to learn going along the line that I can practice today. Unfortunately, if we come to today, it's an entirely different situation can con- comparing how things have changed. So originally, Cornell University, which is where I went, was a land-grant school, and there really was no tuition at that time. There was only an annual fee, which was minimal. So there was no debt that we incurred when we came out of school. Uh. Today, students who are going into veterinary medicine and medicine, of course, come out with a oh, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand $200,000 in debt. Now, and when we compare what the salaries are to what the debt is that has to be repaid, it doesn't necessarily make for a very happy lifestyle. Mm. Think about it. How can you buy a house? How can you do anything else for a while than you're just paying back debt? So
0: And Can I ask a quick question? Sure, I wish you would. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, I don't know the answer to this. I know that there are certain professions like um, architecture, for instance, where the education is much longer than you think it is. Um, And I think of medicine, of course, you know, human medical uh, degrees. How long does a veterinarian go to school and train for before they are successfully they're certified to be a veterinarian?
1: It's eight years. Wow. There's four years of undergraduate school. Usually, you're taking it, you would have to take a pre medicine curriculum, mm-hmm. and then you'd graduate with a Bachelor of Science. And then there's four years of graduate school to where then you come out with a doctorate. Yeah. Now, again, I was in a little bit of a unique situation because when I went to school, they were doing a few acceptances after two years of undergraduate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just one of those who mm-hmm. got in after two years rather than four. There sure. was maybe two or three of us in a class. So I came out, <laughs> this is kind of when you, weird in a way, I came out of veterinary school with a doctorate when I was 23 years old, which was <laughs> kind amazing. of amazing. it was kind of hard to wrap my head around that people were calling me doctor when I was 23. Sure. I was sort of like when I say, wait a second, hold on a second. <laughs> you, know?
0: you look over your shoulder, <laughs> right. who are they talking to? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs>
0: They're talking to you, Larry. <laughs> so,
1: uh, so again, I was very fortunate again. I look back at my career and I think about how lucky I am. Mm. Now, again, I'm going to come to the present because I think that's really important, and there are some statistics that aren't very nice to have to share, but I think this is important. Erica, would you think that actually veterinarians have one of the highest suicide rates that there is?
0: No, I wouldn't.
1: wouldn't imagine that because we all think about veterinarian being with dogs and cats and people and doing something that they like. Of course. We all think like that. However, what's changed is what I was starting to refer to is the fact that there's a tremendous amount of schooling, a tremendous amount of debt, and then the very nature of veterinary medicine has changed because like a lot of things, the small individual practitioner is being replaced by corporations who buy the bigger practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now, basically, instead of being your own boss or maybe working for someone else who's a veterinarian, hoping to basically eventually work your way into that practice – And being a co owner or something like that and having a future, you're now an employee essentially, and someone else is calling the shots. Yes. Now, you also don't have the skill to do surgery, usually advanced surgeries, because somebody else is doing them. And from an ethical point of view, you're required to refer. Sure. So you're in an exam room and you're a general practitioner, and kind of like what you are is a signpost to send some interesting case
0: mm-hmm. to
1: somebody else. Mm. So the reason why I have so much joy in my practice is I really do get to practice a plethora of different types of medicine ethically because I can do it. Those things that basically... Well, it's
0: funny. I, I, I'm listening to you speak and I know you and I know your practice. And it's very interesting to listen to you talk about a time when, you know, people could go into veterinary medicine because they loved it and they wanted to do it. It was a, it was a simpler kind of lucky time to be, to, to enter into the profession, which is what you described. And then today how it's changed in terms of complexity, corporate corporations taking over businesses, putting more pressure, there's financial pressure to begin with because you you graduate with debt. And then there's also something you haven't talked about, but I know is buried and, you know, integrated into what you're talking about, which is the complexities of running a practice today with insurance and, and things that didn't exist perhaps for pets. You know, 30 years ago. And you, the expectations of what it takes to manage a practice today, I would imagine, are more complex. But what I would love to talk to you about is I know with your practice, you do the complicated things. You do surgery, you have a very sophisticated practice. I don't know if you're one of the specialists that people send, you know, harder cases to or where on the spectrum of complexity you are. But it is interesting about this idea that young people going into the business have to be prepared for a different reality. That's what you're saying, right?
1: That's true. Yes. Unless they go on to graduate school, Hmm. advanced graduate school, postgraduate school. What
0: they call a fellowship in medicine. Exactly
1: right. You know, so that's more education, but then they're in a specialty. So they're doing surgery
0: Mm
1: -hmm. or again, neurology, oncology, they're dealing with a specialist practice, and they're in a different – they're really kind of in a different thing because they aren't – although they also will be working for corporations, as a matter of fact, under the umbrella of these larger, pra- larger practices. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds dire, and I don't mean it to sound dire, but it just – things change. Yeah. And that's one of the things that have to be considered and looked at realistically. You know, but I th- it's more fun for me to talk about what I do because I'm very, very lucky – and as you know, because you live in this town, we're blessed to live in Manchester by the sea.
0: Yeah, yeah. How unusual is it to have an independent, um, thriving you know, veterinary practice today? And...
1: It's becoming more and more unusual. I would say uh, I'd, I'd like to express a certain degree of humility and look at it as luck. But I think basically what I do is probably, there's just many, aren't many of us around any longer. Mm. And there are a couple of things that contribute to that. Number one, remember now we're a town that basically is on the ocean. So mm-hmm. cut the population right in half. Right there. And then we have a population of five, uh what is it, 5,000 plus? Maybe yeah, more 5, now. Five hundred. So there's a low population. Therefore, my practice is relatively small. Yes. And that gives me the opportunity to spend time with people.
0: Mm.
1: So, The number of clients that I see per day based on the way my practice is formulated is fewer. Therefore, I can give more time to people. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a really important aspect of having the joy of doing anything. The joy of doing anything is to do it well. Mm. Now, to do things well sometimes requires a certain amount of time. And one of the things I've learned that if I'm limited to 15 minutes with something or a pet, That's 15 minutes. If the 15 minutes is over and I have to move on or I have pressure because I have a lot of people waiting for me, I may not see some things that I would want to see otherwise. I may see that thing, or I may ask the question of the client, is there anything else? Mm. Which incidentally is the most important question a doctor or a veterinarian can ask a patient. Of course. Because now you've established a kind of communication. Now, that's the joy of practice. That's the discovery of practice. That's feeling like you're doing something which is unique and you're doing it well. Mm. If you don't feel like you're doing something well, but you're doing it because you're in kind of a factory situation, and this is true for doctors, you know, why are doctors leaving their profession? Mm. And There's a good reason for it. And that's the reason. So go back to your question and let me uh probably answer it in a better way.
0: Well, my question really is is about it was triggered by a question that you asked me which is what profession do you would you imagine has a high suicide rate?
1: No, well certainly not this one. I know dentistry does. Yeah. I can understand that. No, but I mean otherwise if it w- if it wasn't for the corporate part of it would I do it's literally a dream come true.
0: Let me ask you something would you be a veterinarian today if you were young? Larry Lamb starting no, out his career oh, absolutely without a
1: doubt no number 1 the problem would be that basically again i would be going to school i would be coming out with debt i would be forced to work for somebody it wouldn't be mo- most likely an intimate situation um and i wouldn't basically get to learn the things that i know how to do i would not have that opportunity it's it's different it's just hmm. i think it's entirely it's a different situation Um, And I can't really make any analogies between other professions and how they've changed. You know, if you think about the old-time vision of a doctor sitting in his office and seeing people, oh, that's another issue, house calls. I have the time to do a house call. I have the time to put an animal to sleep for somebody who needs to have the animal put to sleep and take the time with that person, not seeing it like, oh, darn, I've got to put an animal to sleep. This is really bad news. No, no. That's an extraordinarily important thing to be able to do. Mm. You need the time to do it. Mm. You need to understand how important it is, and it has to be an integral part of what you do because that's a big part of the satisfaction of helping people. And that's what makes everyone happy when they really feel that like they're doing something good.
0: Well, you're you're painting a very concerning picture as I pull it pull the lens back because you're describing a professional situation in which people are, it's structurally, people are have a lot of reasons to be dissatisfied or not as proud or not as satisfied with their jobs and their professions and their lives as they could be because they have less time to do right. the thing they love because more complexity and more pressures are being introduced into their careers, uh, whether it's through debt or through corporate ownership or something. But at the same time, I'm going to go back to something that you talked about at the very beginning, which is that The role of pets in the last several decades has just increased and is, and especially with the pandemic that has become more, that has surged, has become more prominent. And it doesn't look like it's slowing down, by the way. I mean, this is a, a continuum. This is, pets are becoming more important in the lives of Americans and American families. They are, they are part of the American family now. So Why don't you talk about that and talk about sort of the future and what might be able to happen with the profession of veterinary health and and pet health?
1: That's a good question, Erica. I want to go back for a second. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I want to go back and say that, number one, I've been the president of the Veterinary Association of the North Shore, and I want to be careful not to paint too dire a prediction. Because a lot of my friends in the profession are very happy people. Yeah. It's not all everybody wants to commit suicide and they're all basically just behind the table.
0: Can it, I just uh, say something as a listener sure. too to what you to listening to you? Yep. I don't hear that you think it's terrible as much as I hear that you think it's a shame because you experienced such a wonderful ex- you had a wonderful experience to compare it to. Right. Do you
1: know what I mean? Oh, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And I know, again, I've been doing this for longer than I care to admit. And I also know that I enthusiastically look at my opportunity to do it. It's an important part of the joy of my life. Mm. But also mine's, mine's very carefully designed. So don't get the wrong impression from what I'm saying. <laughs> There's a broad spectrum of people in veterinary medicine, a lot of them who are happier and have found situations that, that are working well for them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now go back to that other question. Sorry.
0: Well, no, my other question was about um, you started off by saying two things. You started off by saying that the things have changed um, since you went to Cornell (laughs) and started your career as a 23 year old doctor. Right. But at the same time, you also said, it's been really interesting to watch the pandemic in particular has been sort of a tipping point, but up until then, there has been this just incline in the role of pets in the lives of americans it has just become more and more popular and pets are now part of your family of of the family they sleep in bed with you they they go on vacations with you i mean right. this is it the, the role and how we see pets has only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger so i wanted to spend some time kind of talking about that and maybe some of your observations about about pets and, and the role of pets in, in life and 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 what's happening.
1: I think the pandemic is, has certainly made us look at it more acutely. And as a matter of fact, there's almost like a shortage of pets.
0: Exactly. I was going to say, I was going to ask you that. I believe, I remember that nearly every animal shelter w- had no pets. I, it was a combination of Inventory problem, quote unquote. Right. You know pet, the flow of, of of and of pets coming in, the traffic and and supply of pets coming from down south or from you know uh, areas that that had gone undergone emergencies. But, but then also people were adopting at unprecedented rates. right?
1: Exactly. Yes, which is great, considering that there are pets who need homes. So that part of it is wonderful. The part that hasn't changed in that whole thing, and I can speak from my own personal experience, when you have that certain pet, it could have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, that pet worked its way into your heart. Mm -hmm. And that part hasn't changed. You know, the the other thing also in relationship to veterinary medicine, and I'm just not necessarily a good example, because graduating at 23, going into the Air Force during the Vietnamese War as a veterinarian, being stationed in southern Italy, inspecting food for the, for, for the Navy, for ships that were going over to the war, that was my job, and yeah. creating a veterinary practice on the base. Well, you know, think about how lucky that is, basically being in southern Italy for two years while other people are basically fighting a, a war. But I was, you know, serving. So just to talk to you about my personal history to explain to you so you more understand, my career is atypical. Hmm. in a lot of ways. So you have to understand, I also had a Jewish mother. And her greatest desire was to see her husband become a very wealthy veterinarian. in <laughs> a big brat. Her breath. son. <laughs> what <laughs> did I say? You said husband. <laughs> no, I thank you. So so my intention, for whatever reason, uh, that I never really considered uh, having a big house in, in a state somewhere. This was never anything that was important to me. So I... After being in the service for two years, I then practiced in New York City for a couple of years, mm. and I saw basically the city denigrating. It wasn't a place that I wanted to spend more time in, so I put everything. Was that this I owned. the early seventies? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Before Ed Koch.
1: Yep. It was. Yeah. Exactly. It was the seventies. Mm-hmm. So I put everything in storage and traveled for two years. When Africa. New
0: York, by the way, for the for the I'm a, I'm from Long Island, so I know we this. both are. <laughs> yes. So uh, I will say the 1970s, famously in New York City. Famously, New York City was almost, was on the brink of bankruptcy mm-hmm. and literally couldn't function for a while. And that gave birth to a lot of creativity and interesting things. It also, a lot of crime, a lot of, it was very, it was a tough time in New York City. Yeah. But it's also another, it was very colorful at the same time, but it was definitely, it was uh, it was challenging. New York City was not the New York City of today.
1: <laughs> no, it isn't the New York City.
0: <laughs> but I understand when you say you today. got back from Vietnam, you went to New York City And then you said,
1: Uh uh-uh, this isn't it. Yes. This isn't it. And basically, um, I was more interested in seeing animals than I was basically trying to start a practice. I was still very young. I was only 30 years old at the time. Mm. And I was too young basically to commit myself to starting a career. So I took a year and a half off, bought a Volkswagen in Europe, and you know this story, and drove through Africa, which was a life-changing experience.
0: You drove. A van, right across the Sahara Desert, across Africa, right. Amazing.
1: You know, as I look back, it was amazing. It truly was. Uh, as I say, life-altering in so many different ways. And then, and then, I came back to open up a small practice in Vermont because that was my. crunchy granola stage (laughs) so (laughs) so so you weren't
0: you weren't following your mother's dream of becoming a wealthy doctor (laughs) my poor (laughs) my poor mother (laughs) you were joining the (laughs) nut and berry crowd (laughs) exactly i was trying to eventually to learn exactly
1: what i I wasn't but that's besides the point
0: larry let's say you were becoming extremely well-rounded
1: Yes, well, <laughs> it, it, it did work out that way. So we had a small practice. I had a small practice in Vermont. Had a, like a thirty-acre farm that was just land, and uh, five miles out of Stowe, and I had a very small practice, and um, that was very. Yeah, again, that was extremely interested. Opened up another practice in Waitsfield, Vermont. Now we're starting to progress towards doing something. And then, to be honest with you, living in Vermont really, it's wonderful for a lot of people. I didn't realize yeah. after. A long time that I needed to be by the ocean anyway. Mm. So to keep myself occupied, my wife and I built what has become like a combination animal hospital in Petco, where we offered a lot of services, brought the first specialist into the state of Vermont, mm. a lot of different things like that. That was very complicated. It was very business-like, which was again, really what I wasn't trying to do. Yeah. Long story short, eventually we got out of there and eventually, after all the experience that we acquired doing this, we opened up the Manchester Animal Hospital, which is designed to be exactly where it is mm. and works. So that's just a little bit of a history. So I'm not, I'm a certainly atypical. So anything I say, <laughs> take it with a grain of
0: salt. Yeah, but it's really, it's more interesting than typical. So there you go. Yeah, it's think- really, really interesting. i It's funny, in closing, I'm just going to say, this has been very, very interesting to me one of the things that you have to i have to ask you sort of a, a a lighthearted question because i'll bet it comes up all the time and it's certainly been in my brain as i've been listening to you everybody is so romantically they love all creatures great and small right mhm it's now and it's like third season it's a television show on pbs that is impossibly it's like a bubble of lovely to watch it you feel like you're just getting into this idyllist, you know and it's the story of this young Veterinarian in the I believe he goes up to the upper hebrides in in uh, in scotland he he goes from Glasgow from the big city uh in the nineteen forties i believe right I believe so and he goes up into a small town practice and it's it's very very idyllic that is what you're describing that people kind of romanticize about being a veterinarian and it's so interesting to listen to you talk about the true complexities of of what veterinary medicine is today in terms of its challenges, its opportunities, and the realities. And it's so funny. Do you get a lot of people actually like refer to All Creatures Great and Small, a television show, the way I just did, or not really?
1: Considering it's my favorite television show, (laughs) (laughs) I don't get the question necessarily. But the answer is, it is without a doubt my favorite. Every time the series is over, I feel like let down. I want another one. Yeah, you know. But also, there are so many things in there. I will tell you. Also, it's very accurate. It's very like what practice is like. Mm. Our experience with the different personalities of people that we deal with—that's fascinating. I would see. That's the other thing that I'm afraid maybe we're missing out when we only have 15 minutes per person and we've Mm -hmm. got 20 people waiting. Mm. I'm not speaking about me. But we're not missing the Mrs. whoever she is, the eccentric person, this person, that person. Well, I still do see that and understand it. Mm. Okay. And also, it's a romantic story. Yes. And we all love romance. Of course. <laughs> okay. Of so, course. for me, as I say, you could talk to me about that. I'll talk to you about it all day. But the most thing you should take away from it is extremely accurate in the practice of veterinary medicine.
0: Well, that's actually really nice to hear, especially in light of this conversation, because we are talking about something that is sort of framed for so long ago, and we are today. So I love hearing that. That's lovely to hear.
1: You know, the, it's a very interesting question, actually, because my wife loves to go to Scotland, and she's just came back, and she went with a friend to a, ve- a veterinary practice because the dog had a tumor. So she actually got to sit in the waiting room, have the experience with... A veterinarian who was in a practice, now it wasn't a big multi-man practice, and it might have been a little bit closer Mm -hmm. to what you see in great creatures, Mm -hmm. and also we're talking about essentially a sort of semi-rural
0: type of community. Sure. So uh, it it probably, I'm sure that it exists. Yeah, well, I love it. Well, thank you um, again, Larry Lamb. Um, You are the veterinarian and the owner of Manchester Animal Hospital, and for our readers, you are the you pen the Pets and People column, and you have for the last fifteen years. Thank you so much. I really love, and I hope you come back. We should do this.
1: My delight. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Larry. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these. Subscribe to the Sidecar Podcast from thecricut.com on your favorite podcasting platform.